Hello, and welcome to the OA for Lent. The OA for Lent is a digital Lenten study guide and podcast that we've created based on the hit Netflix show, The OA. We're the creators and your hosts. I'm Keith Anderson. And I'm Martin Malzahn. And in this episode, we'll be talking all about the OA episode six, entitled Forking Paths. To see the study guide and follow along and let us know what you think, visit our website, theoaforlent.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, on with the show. So welcome, everybody. One of the things to keep in mind is this is the shortest episode of the series. It lasts just 31 minutes. Um, And uh, I've got this sense that maybe after uh, episode five, with this incredible resurrection of Scott, uh, some of us may be wondering uh, if time is relative anyway. Uh, But uh, as a quick summary, we can say that the uh, five in captivity are trying to learn the movements and the uh, five misfits also want to know what's next. But you've got uh, this way in which the movements seem to be tapping into the deeper part of themselves. Uh, the episode begins with Buck doing movements in front of the mirror with uh, music in the background. And then we quickly transition to Hap trying to learn the movements as well. We learn that uh, not only is Hap trying to learn the movements, but that he also has a mentor, another doctor, and his name is Leon. We uh, cut to uh, a hospital morgue, a place of death, not a place of life, in which the two physicians are beginning to talk about the life after death and the way they measure these things. There's a really dark exchange in which uh, Leon uh, begins to suggest to uh, a more optimistic Hap that, you know, he says, here's the terrible, beautiful truth. No one cares. There's no line between good and evil. There's only what a man can stand. My advice to you, uncover what you can, destroy the evidence, and turn a profit. And this really dark episode seems to be punctuated with an exclamation point as uh, Leon confronts Hap with a gun and actually tries to shoot him. And Hap ends up wrestling the gun away from him and killing him. When he returns to the mine, the OA has perceived that something's happened to Hap, and her suspicions are peaked when she uh, is asked if she wants to go on the road and use the movements they've learned to be able to heal people, to make money, and to be able to use these for research. The uh, OA says, I'm not your partner. This is not what I want to do. And we end the episode with a recording of the Rings of Saturn, wondering if the multiverse or the universe in which uh, Forking Paths is talked about is uh, inner space travel as well as interdimensional. Keith, what you said that you found a really interesting Easter egg on episode five that seems to play in with uh, episode six here. Do you want to describe that a little bit? Yeah, there's a little setup, very subtle, that happens in episode five. So when Hap is in his kitchen at the mine, there's a radio program playing in the background. And it turns out that it's an actual radio program from NPR and Terry Gross's show Fresh Air. And it's a conversation that she's having with an astrophysicist, and he's talking about multiverses. It really sets up a lot of what we learn about in Chapter 6, talking about multiverses and forking paths and what this NDE world or afterlife or parallel forking connecting lives Mm -hmm. um, or dimensions might look like and how it all might work with the movements. Yeah, I've been struck by that aspect as well. And, you know, this is one of the ways in which I really started to dig into scripture a little bit. And I 
was really drawn to what I saw as some parallels between the Matthew 5 sermon in the gospel uh, and the way this episode comes. You know, even folks who I think are not particularly well-versed in Scripture have all heard, you know, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. And they're really ways of which we turn expectations on their head in that ancient world that was people who, in fact, were not blessed, were <laughs> the outcast. And Jesus begins to say that they're blessed. I contrast this way in which Jesus talks about who's in and who's out with the way in which Leon and Hap are having this dark conversation. You know, there's there's no meaning in this world versus um, I just can't wait to find out, you know, where these NDEs um, take us and something from a materially successful existence to something that is a much bigger conversation. You know, it's really hard in this show to make Hap look like the more positive and sympathetic character, but Leon manages to do it. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Man, Leon is so cruel and then he tries to kill Hap, you know, and he's got like his subjects, you know, hidden away in the hospital. And it's like, wow, it really takes some kind of awful character to make Hap look good. And they sure enough do it. Well, and he thinks he's good too, right? Because he keeps up forging these relationships with people he's holding hostage right. <laughs> in his ba- in his basement, and he keeps on thinking them as uh, you know symbiotic lab partners that somehow they're co-creating this existence, and it's just simply not true. Yeah, it's episode after episode that keeps coming up, and you know that he's all alone. Like at least they're together in the mine, and the OA talks about how he's alone by himself, and you know then he's upstairs trying to do the movements himself. While he's watching the monitors and, and mimicking what they're doing downstairs, he keeps at that through the whole series and never really understands that, you know, he's, she says in the episode, I'm your slave. You know, this is one of the parts where I geek out a little bit. And I, I've done a little bit of reading, um, like you, not a lot to, because I want to really approach these episodes with a fresh mind. But uh, the one of the creators, Britt, says that, you know, she did not have Christian or Hebrew scriptures in mind when she wrote the series. She's like, I'm an economics major at Georgetown. You know, like I'm, I don't, you know, I don't know this, but I think she's been a little coy because there's definitely spiritual stories all over the place. And I, I think that part of the way in which, you know, spirituality is engaged, I see again, the Sermon on the Mount, this last, uh, the part after uh, salt and light where Jesus continues to talk about the relationship people have with one another, which is so often moralized, you know, turn the other cheek, go the second mile, give your cloak, is often, I think, understood in this master-servant relationship where, you know, the, the biblical writer continues to give power to the person in power and ask the person who is uh, subjective to just continue to acquiesce. Um, in the study guide, I talk about Walter Wink and a pretty subversive way he has of engaging the scripture. He says that, you know, turning the other cheek has nothing to do with the moral high ground, but it is claiming moral authority. And it has everything to do with making the person regard you as another human being and not somebody simply to be dismissed and disregarded. Uh, I do a link in the study guide where he goes into a little bit more detail about talking about how in the ancient world, a uh, person never would have regarded one of the people who worked for them or, in those words, was a slave, would never have hit them with a closed fist. 
you know, you only meet equal adversaries, but they would have dismissed them with a backhand. And to turn the other cheek means then that you are forcing the person to either strike you with a uh, open face palm, which means your eyes lock, or you are at the least uh, confronting them to, you know, recognize the startlingness in which you do not simply cower away as one who is struck. If all that's true, I wonder if the movements of faith are actually physical movements. They're not simply meditations to be done, but that there are ways in which the movements that we're learning in the OA are mystical, but may also have some practical implications. I think Pete Rollins talks about how, you know, who are we as Christians? He says it's, uh, it's really what we do, not what we say or not what we say we're going to do, but but what we actually do. He said that will actually tell you who you are, um, what you believe in the, the doing. Um, we've sort of separated out, you know, I'm a Christian because I believe we're Lutherans. We say we're, you know, saved by grace through faith, through belief. But part of the theme of the show, we've disconnected faith from the body. Um, and what are we actually doing to live out our faith? Uh, what are we actually doing to live out our values? And I think that's part of the reckoning that's been happening since the election. Uh, and at least it has been for me that people are you know, looking and saying, I espouse these values, but I really need to do more than just believe them <laughs> and hold them and share them on Facebook. I need to you know, walk them, march them, advocate with them, and be much more active and love the world much harder than I have been. Yeah, I think that's right. This connection between what we do and what we believe. You know, there's so many of really good theologians who are saying that, you know, belief is powerful and it's good, but if our actions don't actually correspond to our values, what good are they? Or are they even deeply held? Right. I think people are really wrestling with that right now. Keith, I wonder if one of the other things that's interesting, too, so there may be some folks who are continuing to geek out on you know, some of these more uh, obscure and um, Christocentric ways we've been talking, but the way the episode begins with um, the transgender character Buck doing movements in front of the mirror, to me, that was a really concrete way in which Buck was able to engage his physicality. And... We don't hear a lot of descriptions about this, but you know, we we knew that Buck's own father referred to him as Michelle and she. And we know that Buck does not consider herself a girl or Michelle. And I wonder if in some ways one of the things the writers were trying to communicate with the movements and the transcendence is that Buck was latching on to the OA story as a way in which to understand his story. And the, mo and the movements were a way in which to both engage his physical body as well as to transcend the limitations that had been put on it. Yeah, in earlier episodes we talked about this tension between imprisonment and freedom and how each of the characters sort of has, are imprisoned in their own way. If it's BBA with the grief or Steve with his anger um, and Buck, you know, kind of uh, feeling maybe trapped in a body that does not fit his identity. And so, and, and even in the mine, we have the five, they're completely trapped in this tomb 
Uh, but the movements, as they're doing these movements in this episode, create this sense of connection and freedom and power, right, that Hap is so uh, desirous of, so envious of, that he can't experience that. So it's the, the movements alone, and then it's the movements joined together. Um, what I, one of the one of the little moments I liked in this episode was it starts with Buck and then he heads out of his house to the uh, abandoned house and he was worried about being late. Uh, and he comes in, he said, have we started yet? You know, upstairs in the attic. And they said, no, no, we waited for you. And like, there was this, the expression on his face was just like, you know, this kind of embrace of the group, this, you know, that he was included, that he was a part of it. That there was like just that little subtle moment that seemed to, mean a lot to that character yeah well that's that's clearly one of you know the key themes of this series as well is that insiders and outsiders who's included and who's not included so many of us long for that type of community and this communal storytelling that they're engaging in in this house literally under construction really strikes me as uh, it's a practice of faith, most certainly, but it's also a way in which, you know, people are building community in the new world. You know, how do we begin to tell stories when we are so fragmented politically, when we're so fragmented geographically? You know, what are the things that can actually bring us together? Yeah, uh, we in our theology pub that we've been hosting the last three months, we've been talking about how to have difficult conversations. And just being in the same room. And each time I think, you know, we've sort of gotten a little braver about, you know, how people feel and, you know, their political affiliations. And it's been really interesting to watch. There's a safe enough environment that people can do that. And what it comes back to is like, we're in the same room together. We've met for a few times, mostly as the same group. And because I'm looking you in the face and I'm hearing the stories behind why, why it is you believe what you believe or how you feel how you feel and talking enough to recognize the complications um, that were just not a stereotype, that were not just one dimensional, but that people have these stories and they come from somewhere, right? Like these beliefs come from experiences, they come from stories. And what's so compelling about that is the, the personal stories that, you know, given enough time come forth and that make us into real people to one another. We were just at dinner with uh, some kind of newer friends and we were having dinner and we were telling lots of stories, right? That's how you get to know each other. And I was just thinking in the midst of it was like, you know, we were telling stories, Jenny and I were telling stories, stories that we've told like for years and forever, you know, sort of like <laughs> the myth and the legend of how we met and, you know, the kids and all that, right? Like where we've lived and these are like well-worn, well-told stories, right? You know, where people are going to chuckle or laugh. And it, but it was fun to tell them. It was fun to retell them. And it was fun to hear these stories that they've probably told about themselves for years and years and years. But, you know, building that connection and finding those affinities uh, within the, the telling and sharing of these stories that we know so well, which are new, but are new to others, was like this really great experience over Indian food. You know, this is one of the cool key things, Keith, I think, of faith that you and I naturally resonate with. And I think we tend to think other people do. But sometimes until they're pointed out, it's not obvious. I mean, you know, this, you know, during that, probably during that same dinner, you and uh, Jenny were having her, you sent me a, a text message of a picture of a restaurant in Chicago. 
that you had been visiting. And you said, hey, do you remember this? And I immediately smiled. And you're like, it brought, you know, kind of a warm sensation to my whole body. And I said, of course I do. This is where, you know, you uh, met, you know, my girlfriend, the woman who'd become my wife. And we had this really great dinner 15 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) But it it doesn't, it just doesn't seem that long. Uh, And so when we begin to tell stories, we have both the original telling and then the memory of it, and then maybe even, oh yeah, the memory of when we told the story the first time and the second time and the different locations. Yeah. Maybe maybe the stories are their own multiverses, you know, in their own way, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because they, they happen, you're telling them in the present, they're about the past, they, you re- realize in the telling, and when you retell, you know, you've changed, you know, maybe they anticipate the future. So yeah, you live in the past, present, and future in 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 this sharing of stories. I think I've been watching the OA too much <laughs> because <laughs> I, I'm just seeing these stories reverberate everywhere. There, I went to a, a conference in Charlotte, North Carolina last weekend. And, you know, this multiverse idea where I'm, I'm watching this episode and I'm hearing Leon talk all about, you know, financial prosperity. And I'm listening to presenters talk about theological and moral imagination. And I'm also listening to presenters talk about uh, religious illiteracy. And suddenly I have this aha moment where I say, wait a minute, you know, isn't illiteracy actually a sign of poverty? And if we began to conceive religious illiteracy, not as simply a knowledge deficit that people don't know names and dates and places, but actually as a spiritual type of poverty or uh, what would we do better as faith leaders and maybe just as people to try to enrich people's spiritual experiences? And that would in itself increase literacy. And for me, literacy is not just simply, you know, knowing about Jonah and the whale or the Beatitudes, but it's an imagination to be able to imagine, you know, a creator at work in the world and in our lives. Yeah, I think Part of that shift would be a shift toward empathy rather than judgment. When we talk about biblical illiteracy, like a lot of things in the church, we rush to judgment about it. People aren't reading their Bibles enough, or it's all this technology, you know, we're blaming for everything. And if you look at it as a form of, of poverty, you know, maybe there, we can be moved with the sense, as we are in other cases where there's hunger, there's homelessness, there's poverty, there's need with the starting point of empathy, that's like my whole, been whole, my whole theme this Lent somehow, you know, maybe we could approach that in a much different way that keeps us open and would open others, you know, to be helped or supported or encouraged or finding these places of connection in their story and the scripture stories and even stories and TV shows. You used a word earlier when we were talking, um, geocentric, and you talked about the way in which the ancient people conceived of, you know, this earth as the center of the universe. And, you know, I'll extend the, the analogy a little bit more, but maybe you could talk about that, that maybe there's this way in which we've also understood poverty as only a material thing. And if we extend that out to that idea of empathy in which we don't treat other people like human beings, but we can then begin to encounter one another as spiritual people, as you know, um, grieving people, as joyful people, as hungry people, or maybe any of those qualities that the Beatitudes describe. Mm-hmm. The universe does begin to fork off and get much, much bigger. 
Yeah, I think one of the most helpful things for me in the ways of approaching the Bible is thinking about it as literature, as story. And there's a whole field of biblical criticism that's looking at the Bible as literature. And when I came across that in, in my studies, that really unlocked for me as a Christian, as a preacher, the ability to look at these texts, which we often like overcomplicate in so many ways, as just the story and finding where does my story fit in that story, you know, as you've raised for us through the series, you know, where do the people, people in the pews, where do their stories fit in that story and helping them to imagine that together. And we often lose that just sense of this. these are amazing stories, and stories are big. Great stories are big enough to, you know, fork off in different directions in your own imagination. Big stories are, you know, good stories are big enough to hold lots of different stories, right? The, the stories of we see in each character, right, um, in the series, or the characters in the books that we read, good character development, and looking at the complexity of the characters helps us to look at ourselves and see the complexity of our character as well. So I've done, I used to do an exercise along with this where I had a, in a, a colleague had created an inflatable whale, right? Like giant, right? Like it's eight <laughs> foot tall, 12 feet long. I mean, he's this crazy performance artist. And he, he said that he was better able to enter this, almost childhood fable as he understood it of the call of Jonah by actually physically inhabiting the story to recognize whatever else it's trying to describe is a place in which you are physically brought into a different reality. And, you know, whether it's a Porgy and Bess, it ain't necessarily so the stories in the Bible, you know, Jonah and the whale, or whether it's this literal sense that, yes, this has to be a place. I like the OA because it begins to play with our sense of reality of what is and is not possible. Uh, you know, the characters themselves, the five misfits, seem to be brought into the OA story, at least now in part, because they're doing the movements. They are physically, the story hasn't inhabited them as they begin to practice things in front of the mirror, even as they are now inhabiting the story. And the lines are so blurred between, you know, time and space. Um, yeah. Yeah. And just in the way the story is told, and then you see the parallels between the five in the abandoned house and the five in the mine, um, you know, as, as they're perfecting and the practicing the movements, those are happening in the past and the present. Um, and transforming, you know, each of those groups. Well, it's true, and I, I suppose if all those things are true at 31 minutes, um, <laughs> this episode feels like a, a lot longer, and we've definitely mined it for some uh, some meaning. And I can't wait to I can't wait to push on to episode uh, seven and eight as we anticipate Holy Week, but also anticipate you know what do the movements mean and where is this story going. Yep, and we'd love to hear what you all thought of episode six. So please let us know. You can leave comments on our website, theoaforlent.com, on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and you can even leave us a voicemail message that we might use on the podcast at our SpeakPipe webpage. It's speakpipe.com slash theoaforlent. You can leave us a little digital voicemail and let us know what you think. And we'll see you next time. Take good care. Bye-bye.